Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Imagine yourself a German citizen the day after the end of World War II. Much of your city is bombed to ruins, a good part of the population is dead, the Nazi ideology that has dominated your nation for the past decade has been repudiated as definitively as Bambi in Bambi meets Godzilla. Basically, it's the end of the world. Now consider Berlin today. It's the biggest economy in Europe, the center of the European Union, a progressive welfare state where the old racial and nationalist resentments have been reduced to fringe movements, still disturbingly present, but by no means mainstream. How do you get here from there? And could the pendulum ever swing back again? This is the subject of Jared Diamond's new book, Upheaval. In it, the geographer, historian, and author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, among many other books, looks to human crisis counseling for a model of how nations deal with crises, both acute and gradual. For Americans like myself, troubled in this historical moment by dreams of the late Roman Empire, it's a refreshingly clear-eyed look at the many different ways these things can go. Welcome to Think Again, Jared. Thank you, and it's nice to be with you. <laughs> it's nice to have you here. It seems glaringly obvious to me, sitting as I am, you know, from my vantage point as an American, but I'd be interested from your perspective why at this moment you've chosen to write a book about crisis. Why at this moment I chose to write a book about <laughs> crisis? The answer to that is it's pure coincidence. I began the book after the end of my previous book in 2012 when it was time to figure out what to do in my next book. It's not that I foresaw the 2016 election pushing the United States closer to a crisis. There were already signs of a crisis in the United States, but my interests were long-standing. On the one hand, the countries where I've lived in the last seven decades of my life, all of them have had or were in the middle of or were facing crises, Finland, Chile, Indonesia, Germany, Australia, Japan, the US. But on the other hand, my wife Marie is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in crisis therapy for people, helping people who are in the middle of a personal crisis figure out quickly how to resolve the crisis. And as Marie talked to me, came home each week and talked to me about what she and her fellow therapists saw about what makes people more or less likely to resolve a crisis. I realized, I think that similar things, or things which those service metaphors, also apply to national crises. So that was why the book. And you found that the framework applies pretty well, not 100%, right? You've needed to tweak for the sake of nations, some of the categories that work for humans in crisis. You would expect this because nations are not people. Right. Of the <laughs> dozen predictors that Marie and her fellow therapists recognize for how a person gets to a personal crisis. We all know these from our own experience of personal crises. You will or will not get through a crisis if, number one, you acknowledge that you're in a crisis. You don't do that and you get nowhere. Right. You acknowledge that you have responsibility and can do something about it. You don't do that and you get nowhere. You consult friends for emotional support and you consult friends for how did they deal with similar crises? You use friends as models. You're honest as opposed to being dishonest. Right. You have confidence from dealing with previous crises. Well, similar things apply to national crises, but some of them apply in more extension. People have ego strength, self-confidence. Nations don't have ego strength, right. but ego strength suggests a property of nations, national identities, which plays in for national crises. Does a sense of national identi identity depend on history? Does it vary greatly from nation to nation? Whether, whether there is a strong sense of identity? Sure. Of course, national identity 
varies from country to country depending upon history. Indonesia, where I've been working since 1970, Indonesia is a young country. It became independent in 1949. Naturally, Indonesia has less sense of national identity than does the United States, which became independent in 1783. Mm -hmm. But the Indonesians during the time that I've been in Indonesia have been building up their national identity based partly on the unifying unification provided by the wonderful Indonesian language and partly by Indonesian shared memory of their independence struggle against the Dutch. So even a country with a shallow national identity can build one up. I suppose in terms of national identity, it's helpful for a country to have a glorious past to look back upon. But then again, I also think that could be a hindrance. Like in, in, in the case of Italy, they can look back to ancient Rome, but that was quite a long time ago and may or may not have much bearing on the problems of the present. What you're saying is very interesting. (laughs) You're right and you're doubly right. So national identities have different sources for different countries. For some countries, the national identity comes from military success. Britain's national identity partly comes from Britain having survived the battle of Britain against Hitler's Luftwaffe in 1940. Italy's national identity does not depend upon recent military successes, of which there have been vanishingly few. Instead, Italy's national identity comes from, as you say, the memory of the Roman Empire and today, um, Italy's primacy in art, Italy's primacy in style, Italy's primacy in cooking. Um, So national identities arise in different ways. But also, you're right in that national identities can be constructive or destructive. Germany had a national identity in in the 1930s, which included Lebensraum conquering Eastern Europe. (laughs) That was was a destructive rather than constructive national identity. So surviving crisis in those cases may often mean reinventing or or evolving the national identity. Like Britain had to, has had to, to a great extent, I guess, get over its empire on which the sun never sets mentality. Beautiful. It sounds as if you've read my book. I have indeed read your book. Because in fact, in my book, (laughs) I make the point that for some countries, the crisis consists of changing their national identity. Right. In Australia. Australia, yeah. uh, I visited Australia for the first time in 1964, when Australia's national identity depended upon, we are white Europeans, British, we are loyal British subjects, loyal to the queen, and we happen to be out here in Asia with those Asians. And (laughs) Over the course of the following decades, Australia changed its national identity to recognize we are our own country. We're not just loyal British subjects. We are part of Asia. And so when I visited Australia with my son, Joshua, to take him to a semester abroad in University of Queensland in Brisbane, and I walked across the University of Queensland campus, this was 2008, for me, knowing Australia in 1964, it was a shock because it was like the University of California Berkeley campus. It was a majority Asian campus. Australia changed its national identity in several decades and it was slow, but that was the the slow crisis rather than an explosive crisis for Australia. Yeah, that, that actually opens up an interesting aspect of your book. I think it would be useful for us here to talk about how you're defining crisis, because the definition in some ways is so broad that I wonder whether any nation has 
has ever not been in crisis. Sure, you can say, Jared, <laughs> Jared, you've written this book about crisis. How do you define crisis? And my quick flip answer is you don't have to define it. When you're in a crisis, you know that you're in a crisis. Uh-huh. You don't waste time on definitions. Right. But, but afterwards, what is a crisis? A crisis is a situation in which a person or a country recognizes that the way that they were dealing with important problems before is no longer working, and they got to right. find a new solution. And that's as true for nations as it is for people. The problem may be different. For a person, it may be breakdown of a marriage. For me, it was a stalemate in my professional career. For a nation, it may be an invasion. It may be national identity. Um, It may be a coup d'etat. But in any case, something happens that makes you realize the way you were operating wasn't working. There's a crisis. You've got to find a new way. You know, I said what I said a moment ago a little bit flippantly, but I'm serious. Given the extent to which the world is always in flux, I'm not sure that there's ever a moment in which every nation isn't in that situation, sitting there thinking, hmm, we've got to adjust to these new and fast-changing realities. It is true that for nations as for people, uh, (laughs) it's never the case that everything is working right. (laughs) Right, right. I feel that I personally am not in a major crisis at the moment, but there are (laughs) things in my life that have to be resolved. With nations also, a nation never has it all working, but you know perfectly well that there have been some times that are more acute than other times. The Vietnam War was an acute crisis for the United States. The World Trade Towers attack was a very acute crisis for the United States. Pearl Harbor was a crisis that exploded within one hour for the United States. And then more slowly developing for the United States is the breakdown of political compromise increasingly from the early 1990s till today. It's a slowly unfolding crisis that has taken several decades, but it can still do us in if we don't solve it. Do you think that the breakdown of political compromise in the US, I mean, it feels to me like it has roots going back, I mean, probably to the founding of the nation. But when I look at our relatively recent history, I think of the cultural crisis of the late 60s. I think of Nixon and Vietnam and the youth movement. And I see our current troubles as kind of branching off from there. I mean, the polarization of American society under Nixon and that culture war that was going on at that time. Yes, you're right that there are antecedents in the Vietnam War. I instead trace it, at least the exacerbation of it's getting worse from the 1990s when with Newt Gingrich, the Republican declared strategy was, we oppose everything that Bill Clinton does. And then when Obama came into office, the Republican strategy of we are against everything proposed by Obama. So I see this as an accelerating breakdown of political compromise. Literal and figurative filibustering of everything. That's right. (laughs) On the one hand, the filibustering, there have been more filibusters in the last 10 years of the American Congress than in the previous 220 years. And on the other hand, the response to filibuster is cloture. The Senate is very reluctant to close down a filibuster, but sometimes they do it. And there have been more cloatures than in all of our previous history. So you have the numbers to demonstrate there's no doubt that there is an accelerating breakdown of political compromise in the US. And one can argue about why and what to do with it, sure. but that's the starting point. And that's a crisis in a democracy, right? But not every a society that isn't a democracy. If there is no compromise to be had, you could be in a state of non-crisis 
where compromise is also not possible. Yeah, in, society, <laughs> in societies that are not a democracy, um, there can nevertheless be a breakdown of political compromise because even in a non-democracy, you have to resolve things. And the example, again, a country that I, where I lived, lived in the aftermath of it was that in 1965, Indonesia was marginally a democracy. Um, it had a powerful army. It had a president, Sukarno, who had effectively suspended parliament. And it had political parties, of which the strongest was the Communist Party. Right. In 19, October 1, 1965, there was an attempted coup d'etat on the part of the army, which was repressed within a day or so. And it was, the response was that the conservative part of the army then staged a counter coup in the course of which they killed at least half a million Indonesians. That's a breakdown of political compromise in a non-democracy. So I know that the countries you chose for your to write about in upheaval, these are places that you've either lived in or that you have some close personal connection to. With one exception, they're all countries that I've lived in and where I speak or spoke the language right. and where I have friends going back 60 years so that I have a personal understanding. The closest ex ex exception is Japan. I do not speak Japanese, but my wife has Japanese relatives and I have Japanese students, so I know well secondhand about Japan. And you make what I think is an interesting point a couple times in the book, I think in the foreword and in the afterword, about how we arrive at sociological truth and the fact that this framework that you're using, it's in a sense an essay, a first, a first attempt based on this first-hand or close to first-hand knowledge that you have of these countries, and that what's needed to be built on top of this is like a foundation on which social science could theoretically go ahead and, and do much more in-depth uh, statistically. This is very rich and in-depth, but it's ethnographic to a certain extent as opposed to data-driven. You're right. If any reader should be <laughs> misguided enough to think that Jared Diamond's book, Upheaval, has answered all <laughs> questions about national crises, then you are expecting too much of the book. It's that this is a complicated subject where I'm taking a new approach, looking at the approach from the perspective of personal crises and the differences from national crises. It's a first study in which I look at a selection of countries, the countries that I know well, not 73 random countries around the world. I don't use much in the way of numbers. I don't use statistics. If I had 73 countries and I could measure crisis and crisis resolution and national identity, if I could figure out how to measure those, then this would be a quantitative book that would solve the problem and there would be nothing for future political scientists to do. But no, Jared Diamond has not solved the problem. <laughs> Instead, I think that I've opened up the problem, and it remains for other scholars to take a more random selection of countries, not just the ones that Jared Diamond knows well and speaks the language, and to use numbers and to get measures of crisis and modeling and national identity and then to develop it quantitatively. But there's no way that scholars are going to be able to develop this field unless they have the first layout of the field. Sure. I think I've offered the first layout, and I've offered it also in prose aimed at the public instead of in a technical publication of numbers that, that other political scientists but no general public member would want to read. If I may digress a bit, it seems you have a rather fearsome linguistic apparatus. How many languages do you speak? I've dealt with, in my life, there have been 
I've dealt with 13 languages, of which three I only read, Latin, Greek, and Dutch. I never spoke them. And there were 10 languages that at one time or another I've read, I'm sorry, I've spoken, mm. but I'm now rusty on French, Spanish, Russian, and Finnish, <laughs> and, and Foray. Now there are only five languages. There are five languages where I can hold conversation. There are four languages where I can give, give lectures. Indonesian, I can't give a lecture, but I can hold a rudimentary conversation. But I can give lectures, um, and I do give lectures in... Italian, German, English, and Neo-Melanesian. It would be interesting, I think, to our listeners, if you think it's worth generalizing about how that linguistic knowledge and experience has changed your work, has changed the way you see the countries that you look at, has you know affected your life, broadly speaking. Those other languages, they've affected my life in, in big ways. To understand another person in another country, the way you can get most understanding is if you speak their language okay. than if you're getting it in, in English. Other people are different. My Italian friends, they're wonderful. Italians are different from Americans. <laughs> Italians are much more connected personally than are Americans. The last five years, I made visits to Italy every year. And in two weeks in Italy, I have more social life, more lunches <laughs> and dinners than a year in the United States. That's because I speak, speak Italian. You think different ways in other languages. My German friends are much more direct. When I speak German, I'm more direct than when I speak English. Here's an interesting example. The best protection that we know now against developing the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, which we all fear, and 20% of older people will end up with Alzheimer's, what can you do to protect? There's no pill for it. The best protection that we know is to be multilingual, because multilingual means that your brain is constantly going back and forth between two sets of rules. It's exercise for the brain, whereas working out in the gym is exercise for your arms. There's a sort of creative play, I guess, in the jumping back and forth. Yeah. It's constantly having to use your brain within every second. Occasionally, German, Italian, and Indonesian interfere with my thinking in English, but it means that my brain is constantly having to, to think, which rules am I going to apply? And I can't stop and think. It's got to be within a few milliseconds. I have to recognize whether I'm going to use the rules of Italian grammar or of Indonesian grammar. And in a way, you can't operate on autopilot, either in terms of grammatical rules or cultural assumptions. If you're having to jump back and forth, your culture can't, can't speak through you as monolithically. What I'm thinking about is that there's a distance. Like when you have multiple languages in your, in your mind and multiple cultures in your experience, there's a certain kind of conversational distance between them in a sense so that as you move back and forth, there may be interruptions. As you said, sometimes another language might interfere temporarily with, with English, right? Yeah. So in those interruptions, there may also be a creative benefit in that the things that might be automatic in an unhelpful way might get disrupted. That's true. Again, a mundane example <laughs> is that when I arrived in Italy for my recent uh, several weeks visit there on March 27th and when I was met at the airport by my Italian collaborator and he said something, I responded to him in Indonesian because I had recently <laughs> come out of Indonesia. That came on autopilot. I changed that. But then more slowly, I'm now with Italians and I'm. these are not Germans. You say things differently. You behave differently towards Germans from how you behave towards Italians. And I behave differently towards Italians to how I behave towards Americans. That's not something on autopilot. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think about. So when I spend a dinner with an Italian friend and in the course of the evening, so we part at the end of the evening, I think, when are we going to see each other next? 
and how I propose seeing each other next. I propose it differently to an Italian from how I would propose it to an American friend. My wife's family is Turkish and the cultural and family relations are extremely mm. different from what I grew up with in atomized suburban America. I would love to interview you for 45 <laughs> minutes about that, but I think that's forbidden. Well, I, I wouldn't mind. I mean, nothing is forbidden, but um, for sure you're the one being interviewed here. But I would be interested, I don't know how much you know about what's been going on in Turkey, but I, I find the cultural crisis that's happening there right now extremely interesting. They start out as a Western, at least the modern Republic of Turkey starts out as a European-leaning seemingly democratic situation, but by no means, you know, it's run by an, by an autocratic liberalizer, as it were. And now the pendulum is swinging back in the other direction. Right. Turkey illustrates that when a crisis is resolved, it may not be resolved forever. Similar problems may come up in the future in different guises. An example is Britain and Brexit. So I lived in Britain in the late 50s when Britain was changing its world identity and coming to the conclusion that Britain's future lay with Europe and not with the Commonwealth that was fading away as right. economic partners. And so Britain decided to join the European Union. But now Britain is revisiting that question. Are we going to, to vote ourselves out of the European Union? Unfortunately, it seems to me that whereas the British entered the European Union with honest considerations of what was good for Britain, the discussion of getting out of the European Union is not being done with an honest examination of British, British self-interest, but in, instead both political parties are, in Britain it seems to me, are guilty of gross neglect of what really is good for Britain and what the world is like for Britain. Yeah, it's just sort of like inflamed reactivity and jingoism which feels like what we're seeing here too. The mm -hmm. British are very excited about all those EU, European Union citizens resident in Britain. Well, the reality, no one in favor of Brexit recognizes that there are more British living on the continent than there are continentals <laughs> living in Britain. <laughs> right. Um, and there are more British living in Spain than there are Poles living in Britain. And so if you are in favor of Brexit to get those Poles out of Britain, you should be in favor of Spexit to get those British out of Spain, <laughs> and you should be in favor of Rexit to get those British out of Ireland, and right. you should be in favor of Sexit to get those British out of the United <laughs> States. But you don't get that honest discussion today in Britain. No, that's right. And I mean, going back to what you were saying in terms of crises not being resolved completely, I was on vacation a couple of years ago, um, and I was talking to a, a guy who, a young guy who was from the north of England. He, he was a welder, second or third generation welder. Super nice guy. I talked to him for a long time, and we were just getting along famously sitting in a pool. And then at some point, you know, I asked him about London, and he's like, oh, I'd never go there. And I said, why is that? And he's like, oh, there's more foreigners there than there are British people. And I... And I, at that time, that was pre-Brexit, I was shocked because, you know, everything I've heard from the BBC, everything I've seen of the, the bubble of elite British culture from which I, I draw, you know, uh, literature and information, it seemed like 
the country was, you know, had absorbed the remnants of empire. Right. What you're seeing is that the acceptance of a multi-ethnic society in Britain is relatively recent and it's a somewhat thin veneer. Right. When I moved to Britain in 1958, that was the year in which Britain had its first race riots, the so-called Nottingham and Notting Hill race riots. Right. It wasn't until 1958. And Britain did not have race riots because until the 1940s, there weren't people of other races in Britain to riot against. Mm -hmm. Instead, Britain began to become multi-ethnic with the arrival of lots of people, Afro-Americans from the West Indies, and then people from India and Pakistan. Whereas the United States has had a history of dealing with immigrants really back to the German and Irish immigration of the 1840s, Britain has had to deal with it only recently. And it's new for them. Right. They're struggling with it. Well, and here too, we seem to be struggling with it once again, surprisingly. <laughs> we're struggling with it once again. But on the other hand, one can say, we're struggling with it once again, but we've struggled with it for 170 years. We never stopped, right? We struggled with German and Irish immigration in the right. 1840s. And then we struggled with Asian immigration, Chinese and Japanese. Then we struggled with Eastern European immigration. And then we started, struggled after World War II with Vietnamese immigration. The targets, whether they're Vietnamese or Japanese or Irish, the targets are different, but the problem is the same. And the fact is that the United States has a long history of dealing eventually successfully with immigration. And Britain does, Britain and every European country, every other European country does not have that history. Therefore, I'm more optimistic about the US dealing with our problems of immigration than Japan and European countries. The cruel reality of immigration is that the, of the world's seven and a half billion people today, about a billion are in the first world at high standards of living and six and a half billion are in the developed world right. at much lower standards of living and they know it. And they have the op. Now they have the means of moving, whether they have visas or not, to Australia and the United States and Western Europe. It's an, a problem that's irresolvable until the difference in living standards between the developing and the developed world, until that difference in living standards decreases. And you bring up something very interesting in the book, which is that American living standards are already incredibly unsustainable. I don't know, you said something like the average American consumes something like 39 times what the average Kenyan consumes in a year. And with that imbalance and with people immigrating to try to achieve that level of consumption. I mean, it's already unsustainable. And what's needed is for the levels of consumption to go down. But what we're seeing is, is a worldwide push to go to the highest standard. That's right. If there was no human being in Africa, in all of Latin America, and in most of Asia, right. and all that we were left with was the developed world of Western Europe, Japan, Australia, the US, and Canada, that developed world would already be unsustainable. Right. Because of the consumption, the consumption of water and metals and, and the producing of waste like plastic and other things, because the average first world citizen produces and consumes 32 times more than the average developing world citizen. You got 1 billion going at a rate of 32, and you got 6.5 billion going at a rate of 1, which means that the developed world is accounting for about 80% of world consumption. But the world is already operating unsustainably. If all Africans and Latin America, they died overnight, or they went into a freezer and they stopped eating and they stopped, stopped metabolizing, <laughs> right. the world is nevertheless on an unsustainable course, which means we cannot blame those Kenyans 
Spaniards and Mexicans. We have to fix it ourselves. And it's easy to fix us. It would be easy to fix ourselves because consumption rates in Europe, where due respect standards of living, are higher than in the United States. Right. Consumption rates in Europe, about half those in the United States, which means that half of our consumption rates are not getting us a higher standard of living. Tomorrow I'm going to be speaking with the president emeritus of MIT, Susan Hockfield, who seems to come at this problem from the idea of the amazing convergence of biology and technology is going to solve energy and food problems at an unimaginable scale. But I think you would push back against that. It is true that there are some people who say the technology will solve our problems, to which my response is nonsense for two reasons. Our problems, they are soluble now with the technology that we've got now because we're making the problems with the technology that we've got now. (laughs) And we could stop making them (laughs) using the technology we've got now. That's one thing. And the other part of it is that usually technology has unexpected bad side effects that were not anticipated. An example in my own life is that because I was born in 1937, I was born in the era of poisonous refrigerant gases. The last thing Dad did did at night before we all went to sleep was checking the refrigerators to make sure that they were not leaking because the refrigerant gases didn't smell, but you would you would wake up, you wouldn't wake up dead because the refrigerator had leaked the poisonous gases. So it was a big breakthrough in the 1940s when there were new refrigerant gases developed, so-called CFCs, which were non-poisonous. Right. And tested in the laboratory, they were just fine. It took about 20 years to discover that out in the atmosphere, they break down ozone and they destroy the ozone layer. So it took 20 years to realize that this great technology was in fact buying us worse problems. This illustrates that technology can make some contributions. I think that technology, for example, technology for solar energy and tidal energy will make some contributions. There seems to be a continually to me surprising binary between those who argue strenuously that technology is the source of all, you know, all human progress and often historians who argue the opposite. (laughs) I would say, yes, there is this binary between those who've got it wrong and those who got it right. (laughs) We're on one of those who has it right. So I think this is a good place to move to the second part of the show, which for the audience is where um, Jared and I are going to watch a surprise video or two from Big Things Archives, uh, which are conversation starters, and neither of us has seen these before, and we'll see where the conversation goes from here. So the speaker here is Timothy Snyder, and it is called Why Only, the video is called Why Only Individual Thinking Can Reunite America. Let's see what that means and whether or not we think that's true. The whole idea of best interests in the question, why do people vote against their best interests, is not an objective thing in nature, right? It's one of the very problems in the politics of inevitability is that we think like economists and we say, well, everybody has, everybody's rational in the narrow economical sense. Everybody knows what's good for them. Um, and that's just not true or rather the ability of people to discern what their interests are depends upon a process of education which includes not just reasoning mathematically, which is very important, but also it has to include some kind of humanistic side where people learn to 
criticize or think critically about what they hear, uh, learn to be learn to make distinctions among various kinds of media, because that that notion of one's best interest is not at all natural. It's the product of a certain kind of education, and that kind of education can be undone. I mean, first of all, it cannot be done, but it can also be undone. One can deliberately appeal to the parts of the mind which aren't concerned with the future, with math, with critical thinking, but to the parts of the mind which think in terms of us and them, friend and enemy. And you can draw people into these cycles, right? And the, the, the less that, and this is how it fits together with inequality, the less people see a good future for themselves if they think in terms of interests, the, the more they're drawn into a different way of thinking, where it's not about their individual interests, but it's more about feeling like they're on the right team, they're on the right side, right? For, for a lot of people in the US now, I think it's a little bit like they wanna ride the bench for the winning team. You know, they know that things aren't going well for them personally, but they wanna feel like they're on the right side. And that helps to explain the appeal of someone like a Donald Trump, who of course himself is a failure, but has the skills to present himself as a success and can get people thinking, yeah, I wanna be on that team. I'm gonna feel, I'm not gonna do any better economically, but I'm gonna feel better about myself because I'm on the winning team. I'm on what feels like the winning team. So the whole, the whole thing about best interests has to be seen as a project. You have to educate people you have to take anxiety away by providing certain basic things like schooling and pensions and vacations so people can pause and think a little bit about themselves and their future. If you don't provide those basic elements of, I would say, political civilization, then people are too anxious. They, it's hard for them to get their minds around what, you know, what their interests actually are. And beyond that, if you don't give them, if you don't educate them positively towards thinking with both math and with the humanities, they're not, they're not gonna get there anyway. So it's a project. I mean, a basic thing that we Americans forget and a basic thing that politics of inevitability shrouds is that creating the individual is a project. It takes a lot of work to create an individual. I mean, we want to have thinking individuals. We want to have people who know what their best interests are. We want to have people who go thoughtfully into that ballot box, right? But that's a project. We're not born that way, right? I mean, as a father, I can assure you that we are not born that way. It's, I think like, it's the noblest and best thing we do to try to create individuals, but we can't just leave it to chance. And I think that's where we go wrong. One of the basic ways we go wrong with the politics of inevitability, we think, okay, automatically, we're gonna be those kinds of rational people, but we're not automatically those kinds of rational people. I mean, the, 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 the irony is, if you wanna create individuals who can think about their own best interests, you have to, as a society, say, we agree to make it a project to educate and form such individuals. Okay, and I should, I should follow up and say that Timothy Snyder is a professor of history at Yale, something I, I didn't mention before we watched. What are the necessary components for a society to creatively survive a crisis? Is he right? Is it, is it about educating the fully formed individual or is it about something else entirely? The necessary components for resolving a crisis whether it's a personal crisis or a national crisis, are necessarily the components that you've got on hand now. Because the definition of a crisis is a situation where something has to be done soon. 
you can't wait a generation to re-educate people in a different way of thinking. In addition, all the attempts of academics and philosophers to re-educate people have not flown with people. It's not going to work. So with what we have now, for example, in the United States, what can Americans do as we Americans are now to get through our problems of breakdown in political compromise? If I told you there's one solution, <laughs> I wouldn't you would say, you. <laughs> Jared Diamond, you're a liar and let's end this interview. Um, obviously, there are going to have to be different ways to do it. There are going to be what are called bottom-up ways, and there are going to be top-down ways, bottom-up ways of getting through our breakdown of political compromise will be at the level of individual voters. Voters will notice that the election of the president in 2000 depended upon about 700 dispu disputed ballots in the state of Florida, and that the election for governor of the state of Washington some years ago depended on 300 ballots. Well, 300 ballots, one person, any one person is likely to have a dozen friends. Those dozen friends are likely to have another dozen friends. What this means is that one person really is, if you're motivated and willing to put in the time, you have the potential of influencing a lot of other voters. And with the narrowness of American elections, one person can make a difference. That's the bottom up. People can also make a difference in groups. If you don't want to work alone, where I live in Los Angeles, there's a neighborhood association, and the neighborhood association works together on issues of concern to the whole neighborhood, parking, house standards. I alone cannot determine house standards for my area of Los Angeles, but through my neighborhood association, I can have input into it. Are you involved in your neighborhood association? Yeah. Have you learned anything interesting about human nature from there that you have not learned in your other global studies? Yes, through my, neighbor, <laughs> through my neighborhood association, I've seen that one noisy person uh, can have big negative consequences and that it takes some effort to combat that one noisy person, but that it is possible <laughs> with a good deal of effort. Hmm. That's bottom-up efforts, efforts of individuals, efforts of groups of individuals, but there's also top-down efforts. What can a president do or what can leaders do? Our current president has a different mode of operating from previous presidents. This weekend, I spent part of the weekend with my son who's living in Boston, okay. and Max suggested, let's go out and visit Concord and Lexington battlefields. So we went out to Concord. I grew up in Boston. I've been to Concord. I took a course in the American Revolution. I thought that visiting Concord Battlefield with Max couldn't do anything to me. Boy, it was a devastating, it was a moving experience to see firsthand the foundation of our country, this stuff that supposedly we know so well, and yet there it is firsthand. It was our origins. It's what formed the country, it's still there now, and yet most Americans don't think much about the American Revolution. Sure. And our president, who ever heard of an American president who went to Concord on April 18th and commemorated the Battle of Concord and Lexington? What American presidents have given speeches on Independence Day July 4 that were memorable? What American president has visited Ellis Island and said something memorable. What American president has done something memorable nationally on December 7th, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor? It seems to me that for America to rediscover its unity, part of that can be done by an appropriate leader 
who focuses on the great unifying things of American history. Our presidents, recent presidents, have failed us in that respect. Another component of the crisis survival framework, uh, a big part of it, I think, is sort of honest self-reflection. And Germany, for example, has done a an almost shockingly good job of that since World War II with the strong national recognition of the horrors of Nazism, although I'm sure not every German, I know not every German is on board with that. But America doesn't, not only does America seem to have a hard time doing that, it seems that when we do that, that's actually becomes one of the sources of division for us. I mean, that, 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 that's a politically split, you know, the ability to look inward and regret past mistakes, take ownership of them and move on seems to be a politically divisive thing in America. That's right. The issue of honest self-appraisal is a big issue with contrasting outcomes for the United States today, for Britain today, and for Germany in recent years. Germany after World War II had this legacy of Nazism. I lived in Germany in 1961 when the war went up, and it took Germans a couple of decades before they started dealing seriously with the horrible things that they had done to other people. There was some temptation for Germans to, to see themselves as the victim of the firebombing and the, right. the refugee displacements. But now, in recent decades, Germans became so pitiless at exposing what they did to other people. German school children are taught about the Holocaust in schools. They're sent to the remains of concentration camps where there are exhibits put up by the German government describing in horrible detail what those Germans did. I'll interrupt to say that this is a sample size of one, but my Jewish father, mom is not Jewish, father is, my Jewish father went on a business trip to Germany 10, 15 years ago and told the story of how he was having drinks with some other German businessmen and one of them ended up like breaking down, weeping in apology to him and the Jewish people. People who hate Germans will bring out the exception, but the fact is that, that in my experience, Germans have been more pitilessly honest in facing up to what they did than any other country. Contrastingly, the United States, honest self-appraisal is deficient. Our current government stresses the contributions to America's problems from those Chinese, those Mexicans, those Canadians. Well, the, the problems with voter registration in the United States, the problems with inequality in the United States are not caused by those Chinese and <laughs> right. Mexicans. They're caused by us Americans. The only people who can end democracy in the United States are us Americans. And so honesty is in sad lack in the United States now and contrasting with, in my experience, Germany. For what it's worth, it seems that the left in America is generally able to talk openly and, you know, pretty intensely about historical wrongs against racial and otherwise in America, where, whereas the right is having greater difficulty with that. I agree with you that there, there are differences, <laughs> but nevertheless, readers of my book will be shocked to discover that the name President Trump appears on the 10th and never thereafter. I noticed that, uh, yes. <laughs> and the word Republican and Democrat rarely appears because the problems of the United States today, on the one hand, the problems of the United States are broadly based. It's not just conservatives, but liberals as well are contributing to our, our problems. Sure. And on top of that, I have a strategic issue that for the United States to get through its problems, there has to be agreement among most Americans. And that means 
It's not enough that liberals agree. Both liberals and conservatives have to agree. If my book were a diatribe against President Trump, it's not going to be read by 49% of American voters. Therefore, as a policy decision, I decide that my, my book is not going to discuss the current administration. Our problems were here before 2016, and they'll be here after 2020. And my, my book is a book. It's not a magazine article that will be out of date two weeks from now. Sure. So that's why my book has nothing to say about <laughs> Trump. It discusses instead long-standing American problems that will persist. Okay. In the interest of time and at the risk of going in a, a very silly direction, I wanted to ask you, do you watch Game of Thrones? No. Ah, yeah. then. Uh, because I was going to ask you about the crisis facing facing Westeros, the land of Game of Thrones, from the army of the dead. But that's really not going to go anywhere if you haven't watched it. Ask my ch- <laughs> if my children heard you asking whether Daddy has watched Game of Thrones, they would collapse in paroxysms of, of laughter because they would tell you, Daddy does not know how to turn on the television set if Game of Thrones is, in fact, on television. There's this 48-button remote, and when Daddy wants to watch an NBA game to be able to talk with his son, Daddy calls up his son and asks how to manipulate that 48-button remote. So, no, I do not okay. watch television. And my wife forced me three years ago to get this magical device, an iPhone, which I can use to do few things, but I can't use it to take a picture yet. Well, you're better, you're better off than most of us. I wish, I wish that was all I could do with my iPhone. But you might actually enjoy, if you could watch it, the subtle... The power games and the national tectonic shifts and the cultural nuances that happen in Game of Thrones. But hey, that's my plug. As Ronald Reagan said, my feet are set in concrete and I will not change. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On that note, Jared Diamond, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. For those of you who have been listening for a long time, I want to thank you for sticking on this wild and unpredictable ride with me. I mean, it's not wild like some shows, you know, that are like, wild, hashtag wild. It's intellectually wild, thematically wild. Thank you for your trust in this eclectic roller coaster. And if you like, stop by my website, jasongotts.com. You can send me an email from there about anything that's on your mind or sign up for my infrequent email updates. I'll be back next week with something very different, and I hope you can join me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.